our investors, being much more wise than us, asked us, you know, who are you selling to? And our answer was everybody, anybody who will buy this. Not realizing that building a company that sells to small businesses versus enterprises is totally different. We didn't even know if this was going to be like a lifestyle business or a venture-backed startup. We weren't sure which direction we were going to go. Ultimately, we decided the venture-backed route, you know, world domination, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it was actually a very singular moment when we decided to be an enterprise company. Our mission still stands, which is we want to be that important piece of infrastructure that every company has. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. This is another episode of the Enterprise Ready podcast that was recorded pre-COVID, but the story of HashiCorp's ascendance is truly timeless. In this episode, I'm joined by Mitchell Hashimoto, founder and co-CTO of HashiCorp. This is a deep dive into the history of HashiCorp and their products, their go-to-market, their success, and many of the challenges they faced along the way. Mitchell provides a really candid view into the inner workings of the company, starting with how he and his co-founder, Armand, made the transition to become enterprise software founders in the first place. Their journey is rooted in technology, product, customer needs, but eventually they realized they needed to make the transition to true enterprise. They knew the product requirements, and they recruited excellent leadership, including a CEO with extensive enterprise software experience. Mitchell then describes the framework they use for differentiating between what features are in the enterprise offering versus the free and open source versions. We talk a bit about the importance of early design partners and customers, which often look like hipster enterprises. There are so many great lessons here for technical founders or folks working on technical products. I hope you enjoy this show as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right, Mitchell, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Cool. So let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background and kind of how you got into enterprise software. Uh, sure, I got into it by accident. I'm sure <laughs> a lot of people say that. I mean, I started building open source software, built some software called Vagrant, got reasonably popular. I did not build it for enterprises. I'd never worked at and still have never worked at an enterprise. That wasn't our customer at the time that the company I was working on. I, I really built it for developers and SMB and things like that. And just over time, building a company, realized sort of based on open source software and the type of software we we're building, enterprise was a really good way to monetize that, just both as a business, but also as a way to not cause too much friction with our open source communities. And yeah, I got into it by accident and had to learn along the way. Okay, so you went to school for computer science and, yes. and studied computer science at, at uh, Washington? Is University of Washington, yeah. Washington, great. And then you had a couple of jobs at, like, it sounds like more consumer companies, or what were they focused on? Yep, I worked at a consultancy as, like, just sort of like a spin out websites every three months type of consultancy. And then I worked at an ad tech startup in San Francisco. Okay, cool. And 
you built Vagrant then sort of to scratch your own itch, like a nights and weekends project. How, yep. how did it start? Yeah, nights and weekends while I was in college. It was a mix between challenges I was seeing at the consultant job as well as challenges I was seeing at during undergraduate research at UW and just like things I was getting in my own side projects. Uh, so I scrapped all my side projects and started working on this as a side project, but it was totally a nights and weekend thing. Okay, and so you'd kind of always been doing development work. I mean, you told me some stories about like yep. building things in college that were like apps and other pieces to sort of help automate workflows. Yep. Um, and so you'd, you'd kind of very familiar with the developer workflow kind of SDLC. Is that kind of where this idea kind of sprung from? Yeah, yeah. I, I like to think that I still am. I still do a lot of stuff uh, for fun, but especially then, I mean, all day, every day, I was either building websites or building desktop software or just building whatever I was working on on the side. So I had this very large lens of the dev life cycle, I guess. And so talk about Vagrant, like what was the problem it was solving initially? What made it so interesting to you? Yeah, so with Vagrant, the problem I was solving initially, and this will get funny later because we'll see later that we got really into cloud, cloud's everything that we do, but at the time that I built Vagrant, Vagrant had nothing to do with cloud. It just happened to be a very powerful cloud tool later. But the problem I was trying to solve was for projects, how do I spin up all the dependencies they need and get working as quickly as possible. I was running into the issue at the time. I don't know if this is still the case. I don't think it's still the case thanks to things like Vagrant and Docker and so on. But at the time, you would install like Apache and PHP and Ruby and stuff just directly on your laptop and mm-hmm. run websites. But like uh, the LAMP stack or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And and if you were working on a project that was doing maintenance on one that was two years old versus one that's new, you'd have different versions of things, and those versions were fairly significant, and things wouldn't work. And it was very frustrating because to switch projects took you. You know, hours just uninstall things, reinstall things, save your config files. It was just a total chaos, and so I was really frustrated. So, what I told myself was, I want a way to. I was a Windows user at the time. I was like, I want a way to double click an exe and start the project. Like that's what I want. The development okay. environment for the project, and that was sort of what I went off with. And I hadn't when I started Vagrant. What's interesting is I had no idea what a virtual machine was. So that ended up being the solution <laughs> that I chose, but I didn't. When I decided this was a problem I wanted to solve, I didn't know about that. And what year was it? It's two thousand nine. Okay, so the VMs have been around, right? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I was just like eighteen or nineteen, so <laughs> I didn't know what that was. Yeah, funny. Okay, so then eventually you you integrated it pretty closely with virtual machines, right? Yeah, the first version. It was like virtual machines was the solution. I, I knew I wanted to solve this problem, and then I was like, okay, how do I sandbox things? And it was actually Armand, who's uh, now my co-founder for this company. That told me, oh, you should look at virtual machines. And I had no idea what that was. Went home, Googled virtual machines, found VirtualBox. VirtualBox was actually critical because being a college student, having very little money, VirtualBox was basically the only free virtualization that you could get that was point and click easy to use. Mm. And so VirtualBox was critical. I downloaded that and I was like, okay, this could work. I just don't know if I could automate this. And yeah, went digging and found a way to do it. And that's what Vagrant was built around. And so VirtualBox was an open source. Open source Sun project at the time. Okay. It eventually became an Oracle project, but at the time it was Sun still. And so, if I remember correctly, the the initial monetization of Vagrant was like you would pay if you wanted to use VMware or something, right? right? Yes. So that was two years later. So for two years, I grew Vagrant just uh, on its own. It was never a full time thing. I had I always had a job. I graduated, moved, got another job, like all during this time. And just let Vagrant steadily grow, and over that time, it grew to over a million downloads a year, wow. um, which is tiny compared to today. But at the, at the time, it was a million downloads a year. And yeah, my first stab when I quit my job and started HashiCorp was 
you know, I, I'm a pretty financially conservative person, so I was like, oh my god, I need to make money as soon as possible. Otherwise, mm. like, how am I going to eat? Even though I, I would have been fine for a little while. And so I thought, okay, people have been wanting VirtualBox is is kind of subpar to put it politely in a variety <laughs> of ways, and VMware is quite good in those same weaknesses VirtualBox has. Uh, so I looked at supporting multiple, I call them providers or virtualization providers, and VMware. You know, I felt. VMware is a commercial product, all mm-hmm. in. This is maybe a good opportunity to charge people. It, it seems to make sense that I wouldn't give away an integration for free that integrates with a commercial product. People seem to agree with that, so I started, yeah, charging for that, and that was that was really important because it actually paid multiple salaries for the first couple of years of our uh, company. Okay, and so and when, when did Armand come in, into picture here? Like, yeah, you guys went to school together, right? So like yep. you've, you mentioned he kind of helped give you some of these ideas, but he wasn't working on. Vagrant at the very beginning. When yeah, he, he did not of... work on Vagrant. Okay, uh, so he was my best friend in college. Got so it. he was aware of Vagrant the whole time. Actually, a really funny story is I was so excited about Vagrant. We had lunch every day. I went to lunch one time and I pulled out my laptop. I was like, I have to show you this thing really cool. And I showed him Vagrant, and he was like, Eh, I don't know. <laughs> he was <laughs> really. Amazing. He was not into it initially. Uh, within a couple of years, he was using it for everything. He loved yeah, it, but it's amazing. just his initial reaction. He did not like it, but. Yeah, so we would talk every day, and the key sort of part of our relationship at the time that was important was that he was on the same undergraduate research project as me, and that research project was focused around, you wouldn't call it cloud at the time, it was just server automation, and mm. the, but the servers being a university were donated, and because you know servers with an API were a new thing that were coming up, and we were in Seattle, Amazon gave us AWS credits, and that was very foreign to us, but we had those. Microsoft had something at the time called data center in a box or something. They put, they put a literal container um, on the lawn of our computer science building, and it had a bunch of servers in it, and Amazing. we could access those. And then Google also donated some resources, and then we had some like really terrible physical machines like in the basement of the computer science building. And my job, uh, along with Armand, was to figure out a way to deploy a secure network, like we were the ops people, I guess, for all those servers, mm. while other people were writing Python apps, Rails apps, like C++, like desktop software, all this stuff. Like, how do we use these servers to enable those people? We totally failed, but what we came out of that was like <laughs> understanding the problem yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and loving it, to be honest. And knowing it was hard. It's a weird thing to love, but like we just loved solving those problems. And so when we went into industry, that's sort of the direction we ended up going. And that's where the overlap starts happening between Vagrant coincidentally helping the DevOps community, the fledgling DevOps community, Armand realizing this, what would be called cloud problem or multi-cloud problem late, years later, and then me just sort of loving the challenge too. That's where all the overlap happened within those two years. Okay, cool. So you have this project, it's it's getting adopted, you're not going to make any money off of it yet, yep. you're working nights and weekends, you decide to start HashiCorp with Armand at the same time that you started to charge for it, or how did that? How- yeah, the timing's a little strange there, but we talked about it. Um, but the problem was, we were sort of the only two, you know, senior engineers at the company, and we didn't want to just leave. We cared about this startup. Oh, we were at, the, at the startup you're at. Yeah, and we was didn't keep or? keep. Yeah, yeah. we didn't want to leave them. I think it would have been fine with struggle, and we didn't want oh, to so leave them were, with that struggle. And you were both working there together. Yes, you're like the two most senior engineers, yes. and you're both like, somewhat young, but you're senior in terms of skill set. Yes, and you're leading a lot of the projects, and you're like, well, we could leave and start our own thing. Yes, but then we're going to leave like these people we care about in a lurch. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we decided I would leave, start working on some stuff, 
uh, we would always talk about it in the background. And then Armand would notify that he planned to leave, but it would be a very long notice, like six months, okay. in, in order to hire and help people get started. And also that even though I quit, I would keep working out of that office so that I could answer any questions that the new hires that took over my stuff had. Mm. Uh, so I wasn't doing anything day to day on Keep's stack, but if the person across the desk from me had a question, they could ask me. That was sort of part of the deal. Also, the co-founder CTO of Keep was one of our first angels. Like he was super supportive of what we we're doing. He he actually convinced me to quit, but in convincing me, he's like, "I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot. So yeah, yeah, can you yeah. help?" So I was very much open to doing that, and that's how that timing worked out. So. During that six-month period is when I came out with the VMware thing and started mm. charging for it. Uh, during the six-month period is also when I started the project called Packer. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that all happened without Armand directly hands-on keyboard, but we were again still having dinner every day and things like that. Right. And so Packer was the second project. Yep. And Packer was it's sort of like package up things into a VM. Is that the right? It was. Way to think about yeah. It? The idea was like one workflow to create any image. Okay. Was sort of the idea. Um, it, it was creating AMIs was hard. Creating VirtualBox and VMware images for Vagrant was really hard. Mm. Uh, and those were the only three initial targets. And then you know now it supports you know, 40, 50 output targets. But it's just like everything had its own special Snowflake workflow and API calls and inputs and all sorts of stuff. And I wanted to try to unify that as much as possible. Okay, and so. You had at least one angel investor. Maybe a couple others came in, or had, how did you did you did you take funding? In it? Yeah, so I didn't that? take funding actually for a while. So it's actually I, I think it's a cool story. The day that I told my boss at Keep that I was going to quit, he actually had a check already that he had filled out for a certain amount of money, and he was really happy that I was doing this. And he like handed me the check when I noticed, and he's like, "You don't need to cash it, but if you want to cash it, like whatever valuation you're at, I want to put in money." I didn't end up cashing that check because checks expire after like 90 days or something. <laughs> and I didn't fundraise within 90 days. I wasn't sure if I wanted to fundraise yet. Okay. So again, like didn't know this was going to be an enterprise company. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know if this was going to be like a lifestyle business or a you know venture-backed startup. We weren't sure which direction we were going to go. And it got even more complicated when we built the VMware thing because within a couple months, the VMware thing was making about four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year. And so there was definitely a question of like, do me and Armand just sit on that and just do whatever the hell we want? You know, from a programming perspective, not like go sit on the beach, but like, sure. do we just build projects and just have fun and just sit on this lifestyle? And, and maybe we can make that five hundred thousand into a million, into one point five. You know, is this the lifestyle we're going for? And that was all these existential questions. And ultimately, we decided the venture backed route. You know, world domination, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, and, and and so the the venture backed route was that it all informed by like a well. You know, maybe Vagrant isn't going to be the, the solution for an eternity. You know, it probably has a finite life, like shelf life, and maybe we should try to kind of get ahead of the market and build build where the market should go. Or what were the other impacts that sort of helped you decide to yeah, fundraise? I think there was a few inputs on it. I mean, I think one of them was what you pointed out was we wanted to do a lot, and we didn't see how we could alone do all that stuff that we wanted to do. And you know. We didn't think that it was five people that we needed either. We thought it was more like fifty people that we needed, which is also a joke now because we're much larger than that. But <laughs> we thought it was like fifty people, and uh, and yeah, we just didn't see how you know we did some back of the napkin math, which was way off at the time. But it was like fifty people, maybe we need like ten million dollars a year or something, and like it's not going to work out. And we didn't see how that was going to work. The other part of it was, you know, we did want to have an impact, and 
we weren't sure how big an impact you know individuals can have with projects that are great. It, we hope to be great, but we knew that companies would need help and you know, marketing, and they're not just going to adopt it because it's the right thing. Uh, so we had some fears there, and then I think the last part was you know why not? We were at the time twenty two, and it was sort of like. You know, I'm very risk averse, but it was like if there's a time to take a risk, being risk averse, this is the time to do that risk. So let's just go big on this one. And if it doesn't work out, I'm definitely never doing it again because I'm <laughs> risk averse. So, you know, it's like, let's do it. And and my parents were actually, for me personally, were a big deal because my parents, you know, unsurprisingly, are very risk averse. That's mm. why I'm risk averse. That's mm. how that works. <laughs> and I went and talked to my parents during a holiday and said, hey, I'm thinking about quitting my job, starting this company. And I was really sure, like 100% sure, that they would be like, "No, you have a great, stable job. You have health benefits. Like you're on a good path. Like you just keep doing it." And to my surprise, I don't think I even got to finish saying what I was thinking of maybe doing. My dad was like, "You need to quit your job tomorrow." Wow. And I was like, "What?" And so I went home. <laughs> I went home, and I was like, "If they think I should quit over this, then I probably should." And yeah. so that was a big part. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. And you knew that you wanted Armand as your co-founder. Yeah, hundred percent. He's uh, it's it's hard to convey over over voice or without meeting him, but uh, I think anyone who meets him realizes really quickly that he's a force and yeah. he's he he compliments me in very different ways, and it's very important that he was involved. And so you start this company; it's going well. And like I guess we think about it from the enterprise perspective. Like I'm guessing you had customers that were at big companies, but you're selling individual licenses or something, right? right? Right, and and I would contend going well. I don't think it was going well for a long time. I don't okay. think it was going poorly. In hindsight, now talk to our investors and stuff, and our investors, you know, said that for about three or four years of the company, every board meeting, they were like, "What's this company ever going to do?" They were very concerned that we would be nothing more than just a money pit where we we built some great things and R and D came out of it, but it wasn't a venture success, and there was a lot of fear. From a non venture standpoint, making half million dollars a year on a VMware thing is great because we could pay. Three people, four people with benefits poorly, I guess. Yeah. But you could you could do that. But from a venture standpoint, like if that five hundred is not turning into a million, turning into two million, and so on, like it gets stressful on that side. And and we didn't do that for a very long time. Okay, so you you start to sell this thing, but you're selling it to like, like individual oh, licenses. Yeah. You're not really selling it like as an enterprise. Like yep. you know, here's some management piece. Here's something else. It's just like yep. you're just one one license at a time. Yeah. So here's where. Us being naive and young and ignorant and not knowing what we're trying to do comes into play. Is our initial business plan was we'll create this SaaS management thing, and our our investors, being much more wise than us, asked us, you know, who's your customer? Well, who are you selling to? And our answer was everybody, anybody who will buy this. And uh, didn't not realizing that building a company that sells to small businesses versus enterprises versus different segments is totally different. Yeah. And so we built this thing. And what we ended up building was something that nobody really wanted because it like checked some of the boxes for enterprises, checked some of the boxes for SMB, but the pricing was wrong here or there, all sorts of stuff. And also the features weren't very good. Um, so what was it called? Atlas. Okay, Atlas. It was called yeah. Atlas. Yeah. So it did some things really well, and people wanted to buy those things, but you had to buy the whole product. And so they're like, okay, we want to buy this feature for let's just make up numbers for five thousand dollars, but you're trying to sell us this whole platform for a hundred thousand dollars. An enterprise was concerned a lot of other ways. The price was fine, and then startup was like, "I'm not paying you hundred thousand dollars for five thousand dollar feature." So there was all sorts of problems intermixed there, and 
it was actually a very singular moment when we decided to be an enterprise company. We just had probably our worst board meeting we ever had in our history currently. But it was a Friday board meeting. It was late. I remember driving back to San Francisco. It was a very quiet drive back with Armand back to the city. We went to our office to talk about it, and they didn't have to say anything in the board meeting. There was no outward negativity, but you could just feel that things weren't going well, and it just feels bad. And so we went to our office to talk about it, and we sort of challenged ourselves that maybe we have a bit of a sunk cost fallacy going on, that we feel like we built this thing and we have to make it work. We just decided, you know, what if Atlas didn't exist? Like, what would we build today, taking back what we learned, not just technically, but as a business? And I think we came out with a few things, which is we need smaller, more focused products, is what we'd build rather than this big platform. I think there was a little bit too much contention with the open source community on the Atlas side. There was stuff that they wanted in there. It's like, how do we avoid that? I think the way we thought to avoid that was the features for the largest companies in the world. The people adopting open source generally aren't doing that. And so, yeah, that sort of guided us towards, okay, let's build individual products for enterprise. That's what we're going to do. And we're small enough at the time that that was literally the decision. Like, mm-hmm. I think that would take like a year now, but that was Friday. I think we called our investors over the weekend. We called on all hands with the company on Monday, and we said, we're going to be an enterprise company now. All the employees were actually really hyped because it was sort of the most specific direction we've ever had as a business. Oh, so, yeah, we were afraid that they'd be like, no, I came here to work on cool, flashy things, and maybe that's not that. Although, you know, I think it's pretty cool, but uh, no, everyone was supportive. The investors, I think, again, same thing. They just were like awesome, a direction, and also a direction that they could be helpful with. Like now that you have a direction, we could tell you, you know, who we think you should hire and what you should be thinking about as a company. Like that, it's just impossible to do when your business is anything for anybody. Okay, and so at that point, you that's had five a, years ago. So it's five, five years, years ago, ago. You had a couple of products at that point, right? Not just uh, yeah, open source, right? Yeah, we had Vagrant, Packer, Surf. We had almost all of them. We had all of them except Vault. I don't know. I'm sure people on the podcast won't know what Terraform is, but we have a couple open source projects now that you might call like de facto industry standards. Sure. And they look like overnight successes, but Terraform actually was a very long burn. So Terraform was not doing very well at the time. Okay. And so, and just describe what Terraform is. Uh, Terraform is a way to manage infrastructure as code. So, automate the creation of servers, creation of networking equipment, things like that, but on any platform. So, it works for AWS, Amazon, works for Microsoft's VMware, uh, you know, on prem cloud, everything. But yeah, it, it was not successful and honestly, like not a great product for about two years. Oh, and so you, you actually believe that it was the product's problem, not just like a market readiness problem? Both, both. Okay, so an Atlas kind of like wrapped up Terraform plus Vagrant, like an end to end suite for developing. What, what, how do you describe what Atlas was? The way we would describe it was we built all these little component pieces and this puts it together into a platform so that you could just deploy software. In reality, it wasn't that easy, it wasn't that good, and we're missing a bunch of stuff that you needed anyway. Okay. And the other, I guess, context I think is probably important is realistically, like HashiCorp is kind of one of these very early developer-focused companies. Mm-hmm. And like, like GitHub started around the same time that you created Vagrant, I think. Maybe they were. They like, did, actually. Yeah. I think uh, I was on GitHub fairly early, not as early as some other people, but I think I was still user less than a thousand. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, it wasn't quite obvious then that, like, developer tooling and like all of this stuff that 
we sort of see as these like big companies and this big opportunity, this big ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It wasn't very obvious that that's going to be a big thing. Like there's a lot of belief no. in the ecosystem that like you couldn't make money from developers. It wouldn't pay for stuff. They didn't have access to big capital, and so yep. it was not necessarily like an obvious play, right? Yeah, and I would say the environment at the time was almost actively hostile to both open source, which was a challenge, and to uh, DevOps as a category mm. because it's easier to see now that it's a huge successful category. But at the time, our competition when we went to raise or pitch this thing was they compared us to Chef or Puppet. And sure. look, I love Chef and Puppet as products, but from a VC standpoint, we heard this from multiple VCs. It was like they're doing okay as a business; they're just not venture successes. I'm quoting somebody else, like that's the way yeah, they sure. put it. And so people were giving us really bad valuations, um, really bad terms. They're like, okay, we'll put in money, give us forty percent of your company or something, you know, just really terrible yeah. terms. So we weren't taking those, and it was a bad time. And the thing that saved it, honestly, is actually Docker. There's various parts in our history where we've been contentious with that company. We're not anymore. Uh, it's a great technology, but you know, there's various parts where we were contentious. But for all the negative things, the positive thing that they did. Sort of ironically, if they viewed us as a competitor at the time, was they made it so much easier for us to raise and gave us great valuations just by being as you know adjacent to them. Oh, really? Yeah, it was huge. It was like a overnight, over six month change where trying to raise before and trying to raise after the nuclear explosion of Docker's launch was so much easier. In theoretically, Although annoying because every pitch was like. Are you a Docker competitor in a positive way? Like we want you to kill Docker, and we're like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're trying to do. But you know, it helped us race. And also theoretically, like one of the core things, particularly about Terraform and sort of like infrastructure as code. Like I think that containerization sort of created this movement of more declarative sort of yeah. infrastructure, right? Yep. Which like for the audience, like convergence is sort of the other possibility here, and that's kind of what Chef and Puppet did. Right? Exactly. That's what I was about to say. This is like. You could say a lot of things in analyzing those companies, but they had a lot of the concepts exactly right, and their core concepts are what power the industry now. You know, right, whether, automation and everything else. And, right. Like convergence is a core infrastructure idea. Like that is Terraform, that is Kubernetes. Like yeah. they got that right. Declarative, same thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess my my thought is it sort of helped. There was a shift with Docker in sort of the way that the infrastructure was described and applications were described. Yeah, and I think I mean ultimately, like the infrastructure is code. I think of that as like this really important trend or like sort of concept that you really led and like became that reproducibility and yep. this idea. I think like Docker helped you know kind of push that along a bit as well. Yeah, and your company just like it it really benefited from the attention and DevOps and everything else to that point, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. You know, I think what we did poorly, we still don't do as well. We're getting a lot better in the past couple of years, but you know, we're we're such a heads down, quiet. Working company that we were never like viewed, except in very specific circles, we were never viewed as the exciting, flashy company to our detriment. Even though, like, I think the reason, you know, Docker had a fire sale basically now, like, most of the startups that we came up with don't exist anymore. And the reason we still exist and we're doing much better today, I think, is due to that, is because when everyone came up out of various like hype things, they're like, this company's just been quietly executing <laughs> for right. for a decade, basically. But being part of it just helped us a lot. And I mean, and I, I will liken this back to one of your core values, which I think is like pragmatism as well. Yes. Yeah. What, what do you call it? The ha- like, what's the hashi corp like? Uh, the Tao. The Tao. Yeah. Yeah. It, pragmatism is. Uh, I. I mean, I self-describe myself as like painfully pragmatic. I definitely get in 
friendly arguments with a lot of people just because I'm overly pragmatic. There's a there's a Japanese word phrase, I guess, uh, shoganai, which is mm-hmm. basically like I think it literally translates to like it cannot be helped. And uh, I use that word all the time. Drives my wife crazy. Drives everyone crazy because it's like you know something terrible will happen and people will be so emotional uh, or something. And I'll just be like, yeah, you know, Shogun, I like, I'm not going to get emotional about this. It just, it just is, <laughs> you know. And uh, but like, it, taking that to products and stuff, it's like, you know, we just got to do this. Like, this is the way to do it. Like, there's a very pure, theoretically great way to do something, and there's just like, let's just solve a problem. And yeah. I'll always choose the solve a problem side. Yeah, and I think that's what industry needs, right? They need solutions. Yeah, you do have this like great academic background, and, and Armand, you guys, you're super, uh, like, very, very smart academically. But you also just like opt towards like, okay, well, that's good theory. Let's like actually get something executed in the market that like people can use. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know where that comes from, but we try to solve real problems. I guess is how I'd put it. Yeah, and I think it it, it kind of you talk about heads down like that that kind of it's like well like. Let's just go solve the next problem. Let's yep. move on to next. Solve the next one. Solve the next one. Yeah, and I think uh, like a very real example I could give is like uh, today is like service mesh. Like service mesh is a. I'm sure everyone's heard that word. It's listening to this. Like it's it's a very hypey word, and there's a lot of companies out there trying to sell service mesh. And we have a service mesh too, and we do the same thing. But when we go into companies and actually sell this thing, you know, we realized that in the Fortune 500, the you know office of the CTO. Experimental teams are super hyped about service mesh, or the team that's super focused on like Kubernetes adoption, hyped about service mesh. That's still even today. I think it'll get much bigger, but today is like optimistically ten percent of the workloads. Sure. Like that's optimism. I think. I think it's more closer to five. And so the rest of the company is just annoyed that people are saying service mesh because they have real problems that that's just noise to them. And so we actually sell console. The biggest reason we sell console today is. Service catalog. It's just going to a CIO and saying, "Can you even tell us what are all the services and servers that exist globally in your company?" And you know, he's like, "No." She's like, "No." You know, it's like if you can't do that, how are you going to route traffic to them? How you, like if you don't know they even exist, you can't talk to them. And so that's step one. And so we sell deals that way. So I could say undoubtedly, like console is probably the highest deployed and highest revenue service mesh that exists. Mm. But it's probably like one of the lower utilized for service mesh. It's all the other features, but the thing is they're heading towards that. There's this incremental adoption, and I think incremental adoption is really not sexy <laughs> and it's not it's very not flashy. So like we pitch this idea of we actually call it crawl walk run. We have sales plays around it, we have marketing mm. plays around it. Service mesh is run. So like crawl walk, what are the steps to get there? And it's basically service catalog, service discovery, that's crawl, let's walk. And people Think they could get to service mesh without having service discovery. It's like you got to get there first. And if you're in Kubernetes, you have that. But if you're anywhere else, you don't have that for free. And so we're selling these sales plays and sort of paving the way there and and doing well financially because of it. But you know, you see in the service mesh market that there's a lot more noise for other people, right? That's just that's a concrete example that you could extend to basically every one of our products that has happened at a certain point. Interesting. Okay, just as a for context, let's just go over the kind of primary products that you have. Yeah, because that's I think it's, it's probably just helpful. Mm-hmm. So, Vagrant, sort of the first one, like we kind of talked about that one already. Yep. Is that still a, like a fairly popular product? Yeah, it cool. actually, yeah, it's actually huge. It still gets. Uh, it, I just figured this out yesterday. Actually, I think it still gets like four or five million downloads a year. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. great. So, from Vagrant, then you mentioned Packer. Yes. And then sort of same thing. 
Okay, then the, the next one's... I'll just mention a point about Packers. We don't monetize Packer at all. We don't really plan to in the short term, but it's the backbone of many cloud services. So Microsoft's the only one that's been very public about it, but like Microsoft has an image building service, and it's a pay-for-pay pay Azure service, and they were very clear on the blog post, like, this is Packer. This is all just Packer. And there's a lot of other stuff that isn't public at other clouds that it's just Packer, and you just don't realize it. Oh, funny. <laughs> or like any Azure service you spin up, database as a service, load balancer service, those images for that service, they build internally with Packer for their own platform. So Packer's like this quiet thing that does a lot for the industry, but we don't we don't try to monetize it at all. Interesting. And then, yeah, so Vagrant Packer, and then there's Console. So Console is our, the one I was just talking about, but it's a system for cataloging, discovering, and connecting uh, all your services, uh, no matter what they run on. And that's going to be a consistent pattern with all our products. Is we're not 100% containers, we're not 100% VMs. It's you could bring bare metal, you could bring VMware, you could bring cloud systems, containers, serverless, and we will work with all of it. That's very core to our philosophy. The next one is Terraform. Terraform we talked about a bit earlier. The same idea: bring everything up, infrastructure's code, no matter what it is, container or server or bare metal. Then there's Vault. Uh, Vault is our security tool, so stores secrets, does certificates, does identity management, and same deal is you could get consistent APIs for all that, no matter where your applications are. Then there's Nomad, and Nomad is our application scheduler. And compared to something like Kubernetes, our big selling point there is you know very simple to operate, uh, and also it's very workload agnostic. So we could run direct executables, we could run jars directly, we could run Windows uh, container. Uh, we don't. I use the word containerized generally. We containerize it using, you know, protection mechanisms in Windows, uh, just like CLR applications, things like that. So that's Nomad, and that's all of them, I think. Cool. Yeah. And you do you monetize Nomad as well? Is yeah. That one so okay. we Nomad, Vault, Terraform, and Console are the four that we monetize. Got it. Are they all used by like a similar like end user? Is it no? Okay. And so that's. It's actually a huge benefit for us. So I won't assign them right now, but there's security people, there's ops people, there's networking people, there's developers. And all our products are sort of first adopted and bought by different groups. So the benefit as a business for us is that, say we land a deal and it's $100,000, our expansion isn't $110,000 next year. We could get a different product for another $100,000. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at 100% growth in an account year over year rather than you know 10% being successful. And I think that's where a lot of our Business excitement comes from, and we've seen that happen. We we now have been selling long enough where that happens. Like we've we've had accounts go from like one million to like three point five in a year, and it's a totally different product, and that's why it went up so much. But like that also has some like unique challenges. Big as challenges, well. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, most I think like the standard advice is like do one product, stay focused, like yep. do one thing, do one thing. Yep, and. HashiCorp would be counter. You'd be the counterexample to that advice, right? Yeah, and like, it's hurt us in a lot of ways. So talk about like what you know, where you think that like what what are the challenges been around that, and what's yep. what's allowed you to do it successfully? Yeah, I mean the challenge is from a marketing standpoint, just a huge challenge, just to to try to make noise about this. Like if we could focus a hundred percent on analyst relationships, press, like DevRel conferences on one product. It'd be way easier for us. For example, mm. we have to split budget between four to six products, depending how you count it. Plus new stuff, R and D. Uh, so two years ago, we raised like a hundred million dollars or thereabout, and 
that it is a lot of money, but we joke that we're four companies in one. So we right. basically raised twenty five million per product at a Series D level, which is like, okay, this is going to be tough, right? It's not a lot of money to work with, <laughs> and so. Let's see. I mean, just training people, so sales support, engineers across the board, it's overwhelming. And do you do you train everyone on all the products, or do you kind of have people that are focused? We're starting to specialize now, okay. but it's only recent. I mean, when we were a hundred people, everyone kind of still has to do everything, which is really hard. Like if you, our support for the longest time had to just know everything pretty well, and finding those people is really hard. Training is really hard. They tend to get paid a lot because they're very high caliber people. And yeah, we're now starting to specialize into specific products, and it's we're in the past six months, starting at like six hundred employees. So it took us a while to get there. I mean, so like the go-to-market side, right? Like you think about you've always done great design, but you have like separate websites. You have like yeah. so many oh, different yeah. web properties for these things, right? It depends who you are. I mean, it, it definitely drives a lot of traditional marketing people crazy. So all of our projects have dedicated domains and websites, and then our corporate. Website is dedicated. So there's hashicorp.com, there's terraform.io, there's console.io, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can imagine from a SEO perspective, from a just user journey tracking perspective, it's very hard to make that work. We've now transitioned the people that we have now, and over the past year, we've transitioned into loving that. Um, our marketing team actually, maybe love's too strong a word, but they're very supportive of it just because it gives us a really clear spot for us. To have developer-centric information versus uh, what we call technical decision-maker-centric information. So, all our project sites, we assume the person going there is the user, the practitioner, and we could focus on that. And .com and all the pages hanging off there, we could assume that you're a director, a CIO, you're a buyer, you're 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 looking for a solution. You're not hands-on keyboard directly, and we could tailor it to that. And it's made for some really clean journeys mm-hmm. um, versus. I think I mean I, I can't think of a good example, but if you go to another website that is both open source project and enterprise software, you kind of get messed up. Like on the homepage, you both have a download now and you have a download a white paper. It's like this person who hits download now is not the person who hits download a white paper. It's right. kind of split up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it helps to if you think about who's going to be going to those different properties. You can then sort of target that. Like, so yep. these developers, these are like more decision makers, and let's target the because. There's just different information, different things you want to put those or get, like you want to surface to those folks. Yep, and I think you know I've I've now later as Hashicorp's had some unique things happen, spent more time with like traditional business school people, both that we hire, of course, but academically, I spent some time like at Stanford, at USC, things like that. And it's funny because one person actually showed me that there is a pretty standard path that big big companies follow in their growth and there is a step actually in that path where you diversify the portfolio that's sure. like a phase of a company but it's usually at like the like 500 million to billion plus revenue post IPO mark yeah. uh, it's like okay you're public to continue your public gains you need to diversify the portfolio you know hedge against downturns things like that and that's usually a very late stage and if you put hashicorp on there we diversified super early and it's starting to show benefits now, but it's definitely had some real challenges. Yeah, I mean, because that's what I was actually thinking. I was like, if you look at like Cisco or IBM mm-hmm. or any of these like, huge companies, they all have multiple product lines and like yeah. you know, and they're and they're organized around that. But to do that as like a, an actual startup, and yeah. you've been doing that. I mean, even before you had Series D or whatever funding, you would you would had all these sort of different products. Yeah, and the way we. Sort of hack that early on was, frankly, some products just got neglected for a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. We just didn't have the resources, so we just wouldn't 
we maybe have one person looking at it. I mean, sometimes we had zero when we were earlier. Like you could you could see early on in our release cycles, you could or commits. You could see like, okay, this project's getting a lot of commits, then the rest are zero. Okay, this one is and the rest are zero. And it was like very phased, but yeah, over time we got to dedicate more resources. And now that's a benefit because you look at something like Nomad. Nomad is a very clear, distant number two compared to like Kubernetes in terms of community uh, and hype and things like that. But it does really well as a business. It's an eight-figure annual business, and it's like, okay, even though our engineering is two hundred plus people now, we could afford to put you know six or seven people on Nomad. We could. It would be a venture failure if we were Nomad Corp. But right. because we have this portfolio, it's actually just a really solid line item on our PNL, and it's awesome. Yeah, and then I mean the other advantage, right, is like you have lots of different touch points to get into a company, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like the, the, I mean the, the biggest challenge I can imagine with that, and I guess this this would probably go back to how you sell this stuff would be you, you because they're open source, you're probably waiting for people to kind of raise their hand to like yes. talk to them rather than like doing a bunch of outbound and trying to go top down and figure out who to use how to, who should be using your stuff. Is that right? Yes, yeah. So it has that challenge. We both don't know the users. Like you could download it without. We don't have your email. We don't have your name. We nothing. And so we don't know who they are. We do some like clever tricks there. We do like reverse IP searches sure. on downloads and stuff to be like, okay, somebody inside Nike downloaded this. Right. So maybe Nike's using it. And we actually use those metrics to give our our sales reps that have our named account sales reps will be like, you're going to focus on Nike. Nike is a total example. Sure, we're going to you're going to focus on Nike this quarter because they've. Had 200 downloads from their IP space. They're doing something. You, know, yep. you, you need to find it. So we do stuff like that, but you just really can't. So yeah, we work on inbounds. Named accounts is just a big one. We, our software, we feel confident is highly adopted enough now that even if we never seen a download, we could say, go talk to Comcast or something. We've never seen a download from them. They've never talked to us, but they're so big, they have to be using our software somewhere in there. Sure. Go find it. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of what we do. The other challenge, though, is if you close a deal and you onboard people, is they could be coming from any state or version of the open source that's out there. So, like, it's great in our contracts that we say you have to be running a version at least two years old. That's the most we'll have support for. That's fine, but this happens every quarter. You bring a customer in and they're using a four year old version, and we need to get them from the four year old version to the enterprise version. And as you know, it's getting a little more into the go to market weeds, but like, you can't recognize that revenue. Until they're deployed and running your software, and so it's actually very stressful to be like, okay, we close the deal, we can't put that on our yeah. statement until they're running it, and we got to get this four-year-old version to work without. Oh yeah, also like if that goes down, like you know, they don't do business anymore. So like we got to do it in a way that it stays up. We've never done this path before, and get them going. It's it's tough, <laughs> but I mean, it's the same general process, right? You're not like it's not like every time is a bespoke. Sort of solution. It's like, well, we kind of know generally how to pull people up from an older version. Do this. Do you like a, a, generally some, somewhat it's of a? Just, it's sort of like a one by one. We just go exactly like one version at a time. Like we don't try anything tricky. It's like, sure. okay, you're you're seventy versions behind. <laughs> like counting all the releases. Like we're going to do seventy upgrades over the next week. Is what we're going to do. And that's sort of how it goes. It's, and, it's, and watch it every time, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty rough. And we have pretty good documentation internally now of knowing, like, okay. We know the upgrade between this specific version and this one is a rough one. Mm-hmm. We need to do these precautions, but for the most part, you know, ten are easy, and then it's like you have a rough one, and then the next twenty are easy. And so, it's not too bad, but it's just the thing that makes it hard is that nine out of ten are pretty standard. The one out of ten that's non-standard is just 
very tough for that, you know, customer success rep to get them going. Okay, great. So you have all these products, and you just you decide, you know, kind of going back that Atlas isn't the right way to deliver this, mm-hmm. but you're going to go enterprise. How did you make that transition? What did it look like? Yeah, so we felt we knew what it meant from a product perspective, at least enough to get started. We're like, we're going to break this down into instead of Atlas, we're going to have enterprise versions of our product. So Vault Enterprise, Terraform Enterprise. That was the approach we're going to take. Uh, and, from and a, what did that entail? Like, what was that? What was that going to mean? So our viewpoint was we wanted to focus on sort of organizational challenges, and that would be governance, sort of role-based access control, uh, auditing, monitoring, those sorts of things. Is the categories of stuff we're okay. looking at? Generally, the, like the enterprise-ready feature set, the like, yeah. kind of standard set of stuff that comes along, some yeah. kind of single sign-on, maybe. Yeah, and so we knew from a product perspective a rough direction we're heading, but we from a business perspective we have no idea. So the first thing we actually ended up doing. Again, tied into multiple things, but over the first six months was we approached the board and asked to hire a CEO. And that was, again, due to a lot of things, like I generally just disliked that role. Armand didn't particularly like it either. We thought we weren't very good at it. It was all sorts of things. So that was the first thing we did. It took us about a year to find the CEO. At the same time as looking for the CEO, we started a VP of sales search. We actually ended up getting them as a pair. So Dave is still our CEO. We hired Dave. And then Rob is. VP of Sales, and we got him at the same time, and they'd worked together in the past, and it was coincidental. They didn't realize till a little bit later in the process, oh, you're talking to the same company, and then they decided to join. It was like, if you join, I'll join, and oh, things cool. happened. So, and it worked great because they were both people that we thought were really high caliber, and we didn't think we'd be able to get them, and they sort of joined as a pair, and and they were really high caliber, and so. And wh- where did they work together? They worked together at Hortonworks. At Hortonworks, okay. Hortonworks, maybe other places too, but yeah. Dave was VP Marketing at Hortonworks, and. Rob, I don't know if he was VP of sales, but he was a sales leader at Hortonworks. So, and then Dave, after that, was like CMO or head of marketing at, at GitHub as well, right? Uh, yeah, he was CMO at GitHub. He was also, I think, he got promoted at Hortonworks just before he left. But yeah, he was a marketing leader. Yeah. But the thing that helped is that he knew how. Well, he didn't know, but he had a much better lens of how to build an enterprise company, having worked at Hortonworks and Microsoft and VMware in the past. Uh, and so, he came in, paired with our investors, and said. This is the playbook, right? Like this, you, you don't need to innovate here. Is yeah. like hire a VP of sales. This is what they're going to do. Look at customer success. Look at marketing. Look at finance. Like there's now a business school playbook you could run on enterprise. The things that are wild cards are open source, you know, DevOps. Like those are the wild cards, and that's what you should focus on. You should not stress about building the company. That's a playbook, and so that's what we started running with. And you know, I think the most important things about that are just get good people in the seats. I think. You know, one thing I've always said is I've never regretted paying too much to bring in someone too senior. You know, if he or she is the right person, sort of like you know, personality-wise, gets the mission, things like that. But you're a year too early, and the team's gonna be too small. Just if they understand that and they understand the budgeting constraints and things like that, then you know, they can make it work. And and we've never regretted that. And so that's sort of what we did. We brought in a bunch of senior people. You know, we brought in a whole suite of VPs that had. Zero or one or two reports. Like there's no VP thing about it except for the fact that they were going to build an org in the future. Mm. And so that's what we empowered them to do. Uh, and we said go is very scary as a founder because things were about to move so fast that we knew that we we would be a bottleneck if we were in the middle of decision. So we hired the VP of sales. We said we need to hire ten salespeople and we're not going to interview them. You know, you have the green flight. You just get them. And so. 
that's what happened. And suddenly there's 10 salespeople and suddenly there's five marketing people. And that's when the company first started growing into people that we didn't interview. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot here. So from a, a business perspective, you basically handed over the reins yeah. to Dave and sort of this VP of sales and said, look, like we trust you to run the playbook and go on the like, yeah. on this side, we're going to focus over here on product and maybe some open source and some other pieces. And then you're obviously still very involved in the business, but like yeah. you're going to kind of let their expertise guide you in the enterprise go to market. Right. And I think it's about hiring the right people because uh, you alluded to our principles earlier. One of our principles is humility. And I think that was a key thing we looked for in all these executives. And I, I know they had it now looking back, they all had it because they joined. We were willing to yield all this. Power in a sense, uh, autonomy. Give them all this autonomy, but they had the humility to, you know, understand the current culture, the current vision, and then very sort of kindly, respectfully keep us involved in the right way. Say we're proposing these changes for these reasons, and you know, us say, look, we trust you, and it's very helpful to bring us in. Let's just let's go, uh, and so. That was helpful. We didn't bring in anybody who had really strong convictions of what they were going to do. I think sales is a really good example. A lot of the VP of sales that we interviewed, just in the interview, were like, "What I'm going to do is I'm going to come in. I'm going to hire these three people. We're going to do this." And it's like, how can you know that without knowing our products and knowing the open source movement? We don't even know the open source movement, business movement, things like that. And so it was very helpful to talk to Rob and say, you know, what I would do is this, but I really need to understand, you know, how you are. And I, one thing I really liked about Rob, for example, is he asked me, I could build a sales team that feels like anything, but what do you want it to feel like when a HashiCorp salesperson walks in the door? Mm. You know, it just demonstrated empathy in a way that was very helpful. I think, you know, we we just hired a CRO who started a month ago. And one of the first things he did was, you know, I think some people come in and be like, we got to hit our quarter and do all that. He's doing a lot of that. But one of the first things he did was reach out to our VP of engineering and say, I know there's always a lot of tension between product and sales sometimes, and I want to understand those better. It's like having that empathy and understanding that that's important is is a key part to, I think, success. And so that's what I would recommend. Find someone that the answer is it depends, right? And they, yeah. they start from there. They're confident and and they could execute, but yeah, they they realize differing circumstances require different plays, and and they could adapt. Okay, and so there's there's a couple pieces here. Number one, I think that. That Dave is this really interesting person to come in, and you were kind of recruiting him for a while, right? You were spent yeah. six months. So it was actually eighteen because we we, <laughs> we talked. We, he actually came up before in a VP marketing search that we uh, abandoned. We actually ended up not hiring anybody. We had a VP marketing search, and he came up, and we were way too early and way too small. That's when he took the GitHub position instead. So you okay. can clearly see where like. The comparison is very different. Like yeah. GitHub, very established. We we're very young, but we loved him. Like he was the only candidate in that whole search that we're like, we really want to hire him. And, and during the CEO search, he popped up again. This is coincidental because it's a different search firm. They didn't know we talked to him before. Oh, and he popped up again, and we're like, oh, that's interesting. And yeah, it was like I call it dating. It almost felt like dating. We're having dinners with him like every two weeks, and I was getting a little frustrated because we're repeating a lot of the same stuff. But I think in hindsight, I really respect. How big of a decision it was for him, and I didn't understand how big of a decision it was because, you know, he was viewing this as this is going to be very hard work, but also I'm staying here five plus years, like I'm not sure. leaving, and so it was just a huge decision. And so he really wanted to understand me and Armand's personalities, but all the, the business, everything, and so a lot of the dinners were just repeating ourselves. He would ask us the same questions, and I'm like, oh, 
we said this twice already. Like, <laughs> what do you need to hear? But he just wanted to make sure that was true, and that yeah. was our conviction. So, yeah, it took eighteen months, and he joined. But he's Funny. been critical. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's great, and I think one one comment is like, I always think of myself as a human YouTube video where I just repeat the same shit over and over uh-huh. again. So it's like I the same the same thing here. Like you know, David asking the same questions, you got to give the same. We actually, answers. Armand and I joked about that. It was like, should we just record videos and when he asks them, we just start playing <laughs> yeah. them and like eat our food? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've I've thought about that many times. Like if I could just send a YouTube video, yeah, yeah. and then you can watch it at two x speed, like we think yeah. you should anyway, right? Yeah. Okay, so but the other thing that I think is interesting about Dave is I think enterprise marketing is very hard, right? Yes. And and Dave is really great at it. But I actually think that HashiCorp, like the one thing that I think about, you know, even before Dave joined, you always had like this great brand mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. in a really good design and, and presence. Yeah. And I think a lot of people recognize that about the company early on. Yes, and definitely. So who kind of brought that to the table? That was definitely me, okay. not Armand. He's a just. Throw it up on a. We don't even need HTML. Just throw some text on a page and it'll be fine. <laughs> type of person. So it's definitely me. I don't know where that comes from directly. You know, I attribute a lot of that to. I worked in an Apple retail store, mm. um, and even as a retail employee, Apple instilled quite a lot of aesthetics mattering into it. I attribute it to a little to my dad. He's a dentist, uh, which is a weird thing. But I remember growing up, my mom asked him. Why do you care so much if you know your teeth are straight? Things like that. And he's a dentist, not an orthodontist, but you know, why do you care so much your teeth are straight? And he said that you know it shouldn't matter, but unfortunately, the world tends to see your teeth first, and if they're straight, they have a different initial perception of you. Hmm. It shouldn't be how it is, but it right. is how it is. And I sort of took that to tech, which was like, what's the emotional response when you see a project. Not you haven't used it yet. Like what's your first impression? How does that frame you for how you're going to feel? Like are you going to go into it being like this is probably going to suck or are you going to go into it being this is awesome? And then if it's a little bad, you're like okay, it's still pretty awesome versus yeah. this is going to suck. It didn't work. Yeah, it does suck. You know, it, it sets a different base. And so, yeah, I was always spent too much money on design. Um well, I, I don't think it's too much now, yeah. but it was a lot of money on design and caring about things like that. So we had a really good Developer brand and aesthetic for sure. We had a terrible corporate one, but a really good developer one. And why do you think the corporate one was bad? In terms of just awareness, I think visually it was pleasing. That's what people would say. It's like, that's a pretty website, but I have no idea what you do. I have no idea why I, I should be interested in this. And I don't know anything about your company. So if they went to hashicorp.com, that's what the response would be. But if they went to terraform.io, then like they, they got it. Well, depending who it was. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, actually, one of our investors did this thing where he, you know, investors know a lot of people. He sent uh, ten CIOs or five CIOs hashcorp.com and asked them what they thought, and all of hundred percent came back and said, "I have no idea what this is." And they're CIOs; they're in our space. They're they're there, right? And I mean, are they really in your space? Yeah, but like, you know? they should understand. I think to a certain extent, if we're trying to sell to them, right? There are people we would try to sell to. Yeah, I, but you would probably never be successful with like a top-down sale like that to a CIO, and so you know, there's this. Thing that you're uh, basically bringing, you're trying to bring developers and give yep. them the tools so that they can describe it like up to the CIO eventually. Okay, so that that was the challenge. Yeah. So we we had this great bottom up movement, and the bottom up movement would get to a director VP CIO level, and the problem was mm. they were saying, I don't know why I would spend money on this because I don't know why I need it. That Got was it. where the disconnect was happening, okay. and understandably, the practitioners didn't know what to say to their boss besides, you know, we need this. 
you know, they would say like this is the problem it solves. And okay, so they'll say, let's say Vault, they would say it solves storing secrets. And if you say that, then the director CIO goes to Gartner and says, What could I solve with secrets? And they say, Well, there's CyberArk, there's this, there's that. And and they'll look at that and be like, This looks way more established. This makes way more sense. We should just buy this. Why are you using that? And that's where the practitioners had a hard time making the case. So we needed to help as a company to do that, and we weren't. Basically. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Like that's a very complicated sort of transition. Yeah, to make to say like, okay, look, we know how to sell and get people to use this thing. And like that's a very hard thing to do first, right? Yep. Be able to use a, a thing you built. And then to give that person the ability to describe it up the chain and help people understand why. Yep. And then when they compare it to the other things, it's just it's a hard problem. So Yeah, so I think our short term was we just needed to improve the landing page a little bit, which we did. It didn't need to like be the solution. It just needed to be better. But the short term solution was exactly solve the real problem, which is Current problem, which is practitioners explaining it to their CIO. Um, so we worked on that first, and then the long-term thing, though, is that it'd be great if, when the practitioner said we need to pay for Vault, the CIO said, "Absolutely, I know what that is, and we need to pay for it." And so that's an ongoing journey. But in the past two years, have gotten a lot better of just you know analyst relationships, describing Vault the right way, you know, for better or worse, getting into the right magic quadrants and sure. Gartner things like that. And so that's. A multi-pronged sort of long journey, but that was that was where someone like Dave really helped because yeah. he came in and framed the marketing challenge we had very clearly. He's very good at frameworks, and he put up a bunch of boxes on the board and said, "You know, HashiCorp doesn't have an answer in any of these boxes, and we need you know we need a corporate mission, and this is why we need a corporate mission, not just to have one." We need a one line. Mm. What is the solution like that this addresses, this product addresses? And then within the solution, we need use cases. Like he had this framework that he just threw out. And it was, for me as a programmer, I thought that I would be annoyed by this, but it was actually beautiful because he showed how this led to product roadmaps, but also mapped perfectly to the PowerPoints you'd make for sales pitches, which matched perfectly to conference talks you would give, even about. You know, to developers, like this is your use case. Just dive into the tech, and it was like this grand unifying theory that was really nice. And again, the empathy thing, he put it up there and said, "This is this thing that that aligns the whole company, but nothing will ever change. This is an engineering-led company. Like this doesn't mean it's marketing-led. This just gives us a framework. But what the engineering group is building and what they're thinking, it's always going to drive the framework rather than the framework driving them. Uh, and I respected that a lot. Yeah, and, and I think. That sort of framework helps. Number one, half the time it's just like these are you know the answers to these mm-hmm. questions. Like and you could check these boxes. You just need to like do a brain dump into that doc and create that narrative or create that information for somebody else to consume and turn into a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other part, sometimes I mean, when I've done this, it like reveals some kind of some hole. Oh yeah, and you're like yeah, huh? We don't we don't really have a thing for that. Like we don't have a good yeah. story for that. And then you kind of build more product to help solve that, right? Exactly. They definitely did that. Yeah. Okay, and so so that's really great insight on on the product and go to market side, and, and obviously you know Dave and and uh, Rob, uh, Rob, BBS sales, Rob, yeah, yeah. Like these guys have done a great job, to sort of really build that and, and bring bring the company along the go to market side. But the product side, I think, is actually really interesting as mm-hmm. well. And sort of you said like you kind of knew what to do in yep. terms of making these enterprise, but like how did you know? Was it just from <laughs> a bunch of customer feedback, or what, yeah. what gave you that insight? It was a mix of guess and early customer feedback. The problem is, you know, early customer feedback, the sample size is like N equals three or something. And so it's you don't know if it's 
correct or not, you know, with high probability. And so we looked at other software, what other software did, and we're like, mm. we're probably going to need this. So let's do the obvious things first. It became a lot harder later. And what we actually came out of it was sort of like a framework of, you know, what goes into enterprise, what goes into open source, what are we selling. I think, you know, important things that came out of that was realizing we need to sell use cases and not features. If you sell features, it gets really contentious because you'll say, this feature should be enterprise. Oh, we need to move this feature to open source. And it just causes arguments between a bunch of people in the company. Uh, Dive into that a bit more. Like, how do you like define feature in that world? Yeah. So, one of the use cases we sell, sorry, the use cases is yeah. easier. One of the use cases we sell in Vault, for example, is governance. Governance includes policy, you know, frameworks, things like that. And so, underneath governance, there are features that are, you know, basic policies, RBAC, MFA. Sentinel is our policies code, like more advanced policy, things like that. But what we're actually selling is the ability to have stronger policy for your organization. That's what we tell you know the field teams is we're selling stronger policy. Don't get caught up on the features. What you're selling that it it could do this, the open source cannot do this at a use case level. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't solve this use case, and that gave us a little bit more freedom to not necessarily move features wholesale, but it let us say like this. Knob of this feature is in enterprise. Oh, never mind. It's an open source and sort of dig those around. But we're not compromising the fact that without enterprise, they wouldn't have solved that use case. All this stuff is a little nuanced, but it just got a little bit better from an engineering side because we were proposing features and it was just falling into this argument every single time of enterprise versus open source. And yeah, it got messy. And so, like, is there like a definitive framework, or is it like, oh, okay, only if you're using this with multiple users or twenty users or some number? Yep. Like, is that? Yeah. So we do have a, a separate framework, which is it's three categories basically. We split it between individual, team, and organizational challenges. Mm. And so, what we always say is, we do not make technical challenges enterprise. The technical challenge should always be solved for free mm-hmm. and in open source. So a very concrete example I give you is you should not have to pay us to be secure with Vault. Vault is a security tool. Sure. You will get security, like world-class Fortune 5 level security with the open source product. You could do it. But we sell organizational solutions. So you could do that, but you might not be able to do it in a way that satisfies GDPR requirements, satisfies data sovereignty laws, things like that. Like you, you know, those things we will sell to you because those are not they're solved by technical solutions, but that's has nothing to do with making you more secure. You're just adhering to laws and things. And so that's sort of the line we make between the two ends. The middle line of collaboration is you should be successful for free with you and a group of buddies, um, basically, can use our products forever. Never gonna charge you anything. But if you're working with multiple teams, two teams is usually where I draw the boundary. If you're working with two teams that need to coordinate, you could try to make it work. You're probably going to have to duct tape a lot of things, but we mm-hmm. will sell you a lower cost thing that solves those challenges associated with teamwork and collaboration. So it's an organizational challenge, but it's a small organizational challenge. Mm, interesting. And uh, that, that sort of allows you to differentiate sort of like this good, better, best, like free, yeah. like good, and then like best, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of like best, in terms of, or just like most complex, right. like you know, middle complex. And then the other advantage there is, 
you don't have to expose the most complex features to your free users, right? Because it would kind of they don't need those things. It would just right. kind of muddy up the overall experience, right? It obviously gets a little more complicated than that. Like within organization, the organizational challenge, we sell multiple modules which match to the use cases, and we do that so that there are different price points and there, there's all sorts of stuff there. But the big picture is what I just told you, and it also makes it really nice because. It doesn't get too contentious. Like, you know, there's there's always the outlier, but 99% of the time, what's an open source, what's an enterprise, no one argues about it at the community level. Like the open source user never gets pissed at us. Oh, um, nice. The challenge there, and this is something culturally I've had to try to instill, is that as times change, so do our beliefs in what constitutes open source for enterprise. The example I bring up is sort of elastic here. Elastic made this decision very early in the company to make sort of security broadly an enterprise feature. TLS or something. Or it's, you know. TLS auth, I think yeah. auth was a big one. But yeah, it's basically like you could run a search cluster, but if you want auth and TLS and those sort of things, you got to pay us. And I think that was totally fine, you know, circa the time that Ten they years did ago, that. Whatever, yeah. yeah, but I think as an industry, we've gotten so much more security aware. That security has to be a given now, and so that caused some issues, you know, with Amazon and very public issues and challenges, forks, things like that. And so I've done the same thing with our teams, which is like times are going to change, and I've sort of red flagged like I think this won't last an enterprise because as a use case, because it's just going to have to be open source. And so you know, one of the things I gave an example of was things like multi-factor authentication and stuff. Like mm-hmm. historically, MFA is one of those things, and and. LDAP and single sign on. Yeah, yeah. One of those things that you would withhold into enterprise. And I think we're just, we're still not there yet, but we're just getting closer and closer as an industry to expecting MFA on everything and expecting to have a single identity for everything. Like yeah. having multiple identities kind of sucks. And so that's, you know, on the fence of, I think the whole industry is going to tip over in the next couple of years. Yeah, there's like some GitHub repo that like shames. You know, yeah. SaaS products for ha- like charging more for SSO, right? Yeah. Single sign-on. Yeah, because it makes you safer, and people are believing that now. Right. Yeah. And but like you know, five six years ago, it was obvious that like if you were paying for Okta yep. and single sign-on, you could pay more for this product because like that you know single sign-on solution was expensive. So exactly. And the reality is like you know I think that the world of like password managers actually makes like password based accounts a bit more secure. Totally. Yeah. Right. So like you the blast radius is way smaller. Yeah. There's an argument you can make. And if you like have support for 2FA, it just, you know, I still think like single sign on because of the like account provisioning and like that's really the organizational problem you're solving is like how do you automate the process around account creation and restriction in a large organization. We have a thousand users. Yep. It's like, you know, you don't want to have to Go into an admin console and like remove and add people every time. Yep. Okay. So this, um, this is actually a really good example of the feature versus use case thing. You could still sell the use case of sort of governance and put single sign on in that bucket, but we might be able to say, you know, certain single sign on LDAP is now open source, but Okta and things like that, they might work with all, they work fine with all that, but native integration things are more enterprisey, right? Because you're paying for that, that's a commercial entity. They have these more advanced features to get that, you have to pay us. And that lets us slide these things around, but the use case is still pretty solid. Yeah, and I, and I think like ultimately it's it's always important to be able to differentiate like different pricing plans for the mm-hmm. same like, you know, sort of core open source value. You want to be able to have different pricing plans for enterprises and mid-market and, and open source because ultimately like the amount of value that an enterprise is gaining from using your product 
it can be orders and orders and orders of magnitude more than like the amount of value that a small startup is really gaining from it, right? Yeah, yeah. So they should pay more. And it, it takes time to build all that out. Like for you know, we've been monetizing for about three and a half, four years now, and up until last year, we only had top end enterprise pricing. It was like if you had a hundred, well, let's say if you had seventy five thousand dollars and you wanted to pay us, like we didn't have anything for you. Like there was nothing. Like you could really want to buy something for that much, and there was just nothing we could slice and dice and give you. And in the past year, that's been a focus to go more down market. But it's really hard to do that because it's not it's not just about having the product and slicing it up. I think that's the easy part actually is slicing some features and packaging it up and giving it to you. The hard part is what is the right boundaries, what is the right price point, and also all the support and sales you need to hire to support that, right? So that's been where we've held back is because. It's like okay, yeah, we could sell you just replication and vault for let's call it twenty thousand dollars, but if you have a support ticket, we're going to be so overwhelmed by our people paying five hundred thousand dollars that I don't think you're going to have a good experience. So we're not going to do that. It's not a product issue; it's an organizational issue for us. And so we're getting there. But I think my learnings there is you can't dive in too quickly into selling to everybody. That's it. Kind of goes mm. back to. Not just selling to any segment, but also any price point. Like I think anchoring at one is a really good idea, and I I would say the rough anchors are SMB, well, small, mid, and enterprise. And you anchored at enterprise, right? We anchored at enterprise, and we're yeah. moving, we're moving down. Yeah, like, it's interesting because you're you're open source, mm-hmm. and so you're already kind of downstream. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but like but you use that open source really as a marketing channel to get into the the top and right. sell these you know enterprise deals. And now you're saying, okay, well, we're gonna we're going to also pair sort of a, you know an up market or like an up, like we're gonna move up from open source independently and maybe let some developers pay for things online and do yep. things right. Yeah, and you could see that you know Conway's law is a thing, and you could see that in just like our organizational structure. The number of people whose primary focus is the success of open source is probably a hundred people in the company because mm-hmm. it's probably like engineering predominantly, and then DevRel, and then there's another. 800, 900 people that are 100% focused on making enterprise successful, right? It's like customer success. All you do is enterprise customers. Sure. Customer support, 90% of what you do is enterprise customer sales, named accounts, all enterprise customers. Finance, handling you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that are from enterprise customers. Right. So the rest of the company is all focused on that. That doesn't mean we don't care about open source. It just shows like we haven't invested in the frameworks and systems that we could support them to be successful beyond their initial adoption you know, curve. Yeah, and I think it wasn't that long ago. Maybe you, you I remember always talking about we'll monetize the top two thousand companies mm-hmm. kind of thing. But now maybe like there's some new, you know, offering. I think even like Terraform mm-hmm. Cloud that's exactly. like going to be targeted at you know at, a, at that sort of smaller user, right? Yeah, and it's mostly our confidence again. Like all things, there's multiple factors, but our confidence that we've. Built a system and machine that needs to grow, but it's all just they're actually in a playbook now. We built a system machine that could satisfy the top two thousand, and we could get there. We have, uh, I think, we recently passed. I think like two fifty out of two thousand of the companies are paying customers now, and we have like clear line of sight to how to get to two thousand out of two thousand. So let's focus our system building on this mid market. We do mm-hmm. not have the systems in place. We do not have a playbook. So let's get in there so that two, three, four years from now we are just. Executing, you're doing both. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then we've been working together for the last just over two years, right? Like, so you know, for context, replicated basically powers the distribution mm-hmm. of Terraform Enterprise. Yep. Um, and so, 
you know, that's like a, a true enterprise. Is it only been two years? Just over two years, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Like, it feels like an eternity, right? It feels really long. <laughs> it feels like we've been your customers forever, yeah. I mean, you've been a great customer that entire time, and, and your team. One thing that I think for any startup, when you find kind of early customers, because I mean, we were still pretty pretty early. It was, you know, we were two and a half years old, three years old. Yep. And we'd, we'd had some great customers along the way, like Travis CI and other folks to help kind of maybe pave the way for you guys to become customers. Yep, for sure. But ultimately... When you find these these customers that really understand the problem as much as you do, mm-hmm. and they decide, like I think you know, your team had built a couple different versions of like doing yeah. enterprise with replicated Terraform. was what we call V three. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So V three of, of on from deploy, but uh, you understood the problem, but you worked with us to make sure that the thing that we were delivering together was the right solution. Yep. Right, and it just it made our product. A much much better product, right? And cool. we took we learned a lot from that, and we you know and then for us like we just made sure that we prioritized and, and were super responsive, and like made sure that your team knew that their requests mattered. But but I think it's a really it's a great way to think about building a great enterprise product is find yeah. that early customer that gets the problem, and then work with them as like a almost a design partner as you're kind of building totally. success together. Yep. If you become a customer of Hashicorp now, uh, assuming you're paying us an average amount. You're part of a system, and you'll get good service, but it's going to be standard service, right? That we we give every customer, right? Whereas our first, I mean, 10, 20 customers, even like me, Armand, and Dave would go to their office like every quarter, listen to their problems. Like I, Armand would just literally go and debug problems with their engineers just to learn more, mm. and so you get that early access, and it definitely guided our products in the same way as it sounds like we guided yours a bit. Yeah, and it's just a really powerful like. But it's so important to have that customer that really also gets the problem. Mm-hmm, exactly. Because if they don't get it, then you end up building stuff that like nobody else really wants. So I don't know who said this. I, I did not come up with this, but someone described that segment as hipster enterprise. Hipster yeah. enterprise. And uh, yeah, I think it's someone we know. But it's, it's hipster enterprise, and it's super accurate, which is that your first customers are going to be hipster enterprise, but they're actually really bad long-term customers. But they're fantastic early customers because... Hipster enterprises, basically to define it, is they are enterprise companies that are highly technical, that get the latest trends, and they're excited to adopt it. And so they're really good at driving your product to be better, really good at evangelizing, because you could say, uh, so for us, a a hipster enterprise was Twitch. Mm. For the first two years, the temple customer we'd use was like, Twitch uses our stuff on all their servers. And it's great, they're really smart technically, but the problem is, because they're so smart technically, they never pay you that much, and they don't need a lot of the facilities that a standard enterprise will need. Mm-hmm. And so they do a great job of driving, you know, your product and your initial business. They don't do a great job of driving the organization you need to build. Like, oh, we didn't realize we needed enterprise blueprints or you know that level of solution engineer because they'll get it. But when you're selling to, you know, another company we might talk to is like Revlon, right? You know, a makeup company. It's like they're smart. But they're much lower staffed, you know. In a lot of these companies, not them particularly, but a lot of these companies, you know, IT is viewed as a cost center, mm. right? And so it's like they're really strapped for cash. The caliber of person they get is generally lower than like a Facebook. And so, sure. yeah, the the type of things you need is very different. So, I talked to a lot of new enterprise tech companies, and I actually categorize them as like looking at their customers and like, oh, you're in the hipster tech phase still. Yeah. So this is this is different. <laughs> yeah, it's good, I mean, but different. And realistically, it's like you don't want to 
in, you know, like, and I love the folks at JPMC and B of A, but like, you don't want to go to them in the beginning. Like, they can't, yeah. be, can't be your earliest customer because they take a They're long time. They're always your earliest customers, though. <laughs> yeah, but like, the process is so mm-hmm. long. And so, if you can find a, a few companies like Twitch or these other sort of like more, like, they're just a little bit faster moving in decision making yep. to be that early customer and to get you into production, like, that's going to be really, really useful yep. to like help you cycle through things faster. Yeah, banks are another, finance in general is another one that when I'm working with early enterprise companies, it's like, yeah, you, you should get them as customers, but you know, don't get too excited because you know they buy everything. Right. Um, and it, it's all perspective. It's like one of the banks, you know, was our earliest customer and they spent, I think, $150,000 on us and it was our biggest deal at the time. We we're like, oh, we're my, stoked. Yeah. yeah, we're stoked. It's a big deal. But then you realize that their, you know, annual IT budget is something outrageous. Like billions. Yeah, tens of billions. Yeah. I think it was like twenty billion dollars. Yeah. And they're spending 150000 on you. And that puts it in perspective, like, you're not important. Yeah. Like this is somebody like buying in and out for lunch. Like yeah. that's what that was <laughs> just there. And they just have it to have it to try it out. And so the next four year cycle, I think with that bank, it took us four years. We just like just in the past six months got to the point where it's like a seven figure deal where you could actually say like Still, compared to billions, is small, but you could say like every developer uses this now in the company. Sure. But it's hard, you know. Money is green, so take that money and yeah. help the company. Keep, yeah, yeah. Right. but uh, understand that you need to build the machine still. But like that, that kind of early customer development is is so important, and you get that, mm-hmm. you get that feedback, you get to build things. So we're sitting here in LA. I think that is a challenge, right? Like, sure. I live in LA. I've always worked remote from LA, but we based our headquarters in San Francisco. And that was a big reason, and I I don't I don't know if that's still the case, but six years ago is the case where these hipster enterprises that are your earliest customers and fastest feedback loops are just in San Francisco. Yep. And so it was so beneficial to us that yeah, when Twitch called, we were next door to Twitch, and so yeah. you could walk over there. And I think you know at our scale now, our headquarters doesn't need to be in San Francisco. It is established there, so it'll stay there, but it doesn't necessarily need to be. We could do it anywhere, but early on, it was so important. So. I don't know if that's still true, but that, it kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, I think it is largely still true. Like, even though we're based in LA, I go up all the time. Mm-hmm. And the Bay Area just has such a high concentration. And it's not just like the fact that it's like partially because they're next door, there's just this level of serendipity yeah. where like you're walking down the street and you see someone who's like, oh, yeah, like you should use this new thing that we launched. And it's just like all these little side conversations yeah. that just don't happen like when you're in a meeting, right? There's like, there's a big yeah. difference between like, you know, seeing someone at like Blue Bottle and talking for five minutes, yep. you know, three times a month, then like the hour long meeting over a Zoom or even in person, it's just like a little bit, you're able to have less serendipity, you're less top of mind. And so being there is, is very helpful. That's why you see a lot yeah. of companies that will open a sales and marketing office mm-hmm. in, in the Bay Area and have, you know, development remote mm-hmm. or development in, in some different city. Yeah, I think it. it it's fairly off topic, I guess, enterprise tech, but I think that is going to be the struggle with like uh, these alternate silicon silicon cities because this is like the teeth thing. It's like it's a societal unfortunate thing, but like the people you're around and have immediate access to the easiest, you know, really make a difference. And one example we had was when I lived in San Francisco, I didn't really talk to my roommates, and then I found out one of my roommates is an associate at a VC firm, and he got me a meeting, and like that. We didn't raise from them, but that like helped a lot. And it's like I've lived in LA now for like six, seven years, but you know, in LA, I don't think there's any tech people on my entire street. I want to say like yeah. zero. And so yeah. it's like having yeah. When I go to a coffee shop, I'm the only person with an editor open. Everyone else has screenwriting stuff open. So it's yeah. like I think that sort of stuff makes it 
harder and it's fairly cultural, but that definitely exists. For again, I think this is an early stage problem, but yeah. Yeah, and and you know, there's there's areas where like I think it matters most to enterprise software companies. Yeah, yeah. Right? Tech I call it tech for tech. Yeah. Tech exactly. for tech is where it, it matters the most. If you're a consumer, LA is actually really great, for yeah, example. Because you have lots of things. But, but eventually influencers. Think, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think what will likely happen over time is like as consumer companies kind of get started anywhere mm-hmm. because the technology like, that's just the world is technology, then eventually like Twitch could be in LA or you know, like yeah. you're, and so your your customers can kind I mean, of be Snapchat's anywhere. Here, so. Snapchat's here. Snapchat's yeah. here, you know, SpaceX is here, like, all these yep. different companies. So you'll you'll start to see more high-tech, quote-unquote, companies starting all over the place, and then eventually yeah. it'll distribute. But enterprise will be last, right? Because we, we're selling to the hipster enterprise, and that's, yeah. today that's probably in the Bay Area. I mean, you know, just like the other piece, like I always say, like in kind of in defense of LA, like is just, I just love being around different people. Oh, like that's why I moved here. Yeah. That was, that was actually, I was so tired of, uh, it felt like I was never not working. Yeah. Because I would go to a coffee shop, and I'd be stressed out because everyone was talking about tech around me, and like, you know, if it's something you recognize, you can't, you're not trying to listen, listen but you just do. And I would just get stressed out. And yeah, that was a big part of why I moved. Yeah, like I still remember being like at a dinner up there, like just sitting across from maybe Mark, my co-founder, and like the two tables next to us. Like you know, it's all like you know, two tops, and like they're both talking about like infrastructures, like Docker and Kubernetes or something. Uh, this is like yeah. five, four years ago, and I'm like, yeah. oh my god, like this is you got to like, be able to shut it off. Yeah, in LA is great because you get to be around creative people and do different things, and you know that's. Industry-wise, it's super diverse, right? Yeah. It's like okay, like Hollywood's obviously huge, but so is aerospace, and so is media, and so is to a smaller extent finance. Um, and so you go to like a bar and you meet people, and you can meet four people that are in four different industries, yeah. and it's awesome. And like you and I probably spend less time in like Hollywood, West Hollywood. So my wife's an actress. Oh, that's so, a good point. Yeah, <laughs> I go okay, there yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot I'm, of actors out there. I'm I'm probably more removed from like being you know just in the West Side. Like yeah. I live in, you know, so I'm I'm like rarely. I have some friends that like do are producers, but like that's about it, right? I'm not I'm not in West Hollywood. So or I Hollywood. use my street as an example. There's no tech people, but on my street, my three immediately like forward, left, right neighbors are all. Entertainment people, yeah. so yeah, yeah. You, you get that. It's a high concentration. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And so, I mean, you know, now, like HashiCorp, the, the company's been around for a long time. You're obviously doing more and more. Like you're, you're giving a thousand people, right? Yeah, that's, we're any week now will be a thousand people. <laughs> that's that's crazy. And and you have these core products, right? Mm-hmm. Is it you? You mentioned some new products. Is it, is it? Are you kind of thinking like next next products? Like, is there is the intention to kind of continue to expand the? Yeah. So we're doing a, a few different things. I think uh, we're actually. So what's funny is we're still four companies in one company, and our four companies are at different maturity stages. Mm. So Vault is probably our most mature. Um, it's been our revenue leader for a long time, although that's rapidly changing now. It's very diverse now, but for a long, it's it's just the oldest business that we have, and so we've sort of reached a point where we're starting to look at adjacencies that are not core vaults, like new products, but but still security things like that. So you know, we're doing stuff like that, and then we haven't built any new open source, new category projects in four years, four mm-hmm. or five years, and that was because we needed to build this business. I think as we reach this maturity and this size of company. I've shifted my personal attention back towards there is some new stuff we're working on finally. So cool. it's been a while, but I'm excited about it. So yeah, we are we are doing stuff like that. Awesome. And then I'm guessing will you try to monetize it right away or will you try to do more community no. adoption first? Is that the We're still trying to figure it out, but I'm very clear with all our executives that everything seems like an overnight success once it's successful. But if you look back at 
Vault, Terraform, et cetera. Vault was our fastest success. And even if you look back at Vault, it wasn't super successful for about six months to a year. And that was like extreme speed. I mean, that's crazy. Vagrant took two years, Terraform took two years, Console took three years or so. So it's like, I think it's very important. I've been very level with our executives that we need to figure out a way to just focus on the community and work on the free open source project. Uh, and it might fail, but just to give it that six month time where we're not splitting concerns or polluting anything with monetization. We mm. just need to focus on the core solution. So we'll see, because this is the first product we'll come out with as a sort of successful quote unquote enterprise business. So we'll see how, uh, how it goes. Yeah. And I guess the other part there is it'll give you a chance to really make sure you built the right thing. Yeah. Right? So, like, that's it. You know, if you start charging people right away, you kind of are locked into to some amount of, Maintenance, or at least migrating them off of it. Yeah. So if it's an open source thing, you can kind of iterate it and keep it at version zero point one for a while yep, until that's the plan. Until you know you find okay, here's the real thing that we know people want and it works, and then and then add those. You kind of have the game plan for taking it to enterprise. So. Right. Exactly. It's cool. What's kind of next in your mind for HashiCorp? Like, where do you want to see the impact? Like, what's the what's the vision of the future? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, our mission still stands, which is we want to be that important piece of infrastructure that every company has. And I think that's a long-term, you know, decade-long sort of goal. So we're still working towards that. You know, I, I have always said the audacious goal we had when we started the company, and it's less and less audacious as time goes on, but it's still crazy. Is like, you know, we want Terraform, Vault, whatever projects to not be choices so much as like it's like there are choices, obviously, but it's the obvious choice. It's mm. sort of like Git today. Is like you could use still subversion, you could use bizarre. There's a bunch of stuff that's like cult popular and stuff, but like Git is just fantastic. And no one when you start a project, no one says, Okay, what version control are we gonna use? Right, yeah. No, it's like when when you start a new, you know, project, I don't want anyone to say like, how are we gonna build our infrastructure? Like it just it's terraform, skip that whole sure. discussion. You know, that's where we sort of want to get to for every company. And that's that's what we're working towards. Ubiquity. Yeah, yeah, cool. and it's ubiquity. You know, with knowing that, and, and very clear with our executives, knowing that maybe only if you reach that level of ubiquity, maybe only five percent of those people actually pay us. True. I think that's the power of open source. Is that you know, ubiquity in a pure commercial product means like monopoly, mm-hmm. and I think for us, ubiquity means you have choice, but it, it's just the best product, and they're choosing to use it for free, right? Like that's that's what we're we're hoping. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm interested too because there's there's one piece of, about ubiquity, which is if you compare HashiCorp's approach to open source versus like sort of the foundation mm-hmm. approach to open source, they're very different. So like you know you sort of yeah. are the like primary company behind these projects, whereas if you look at you know other projects, they have sort of a, a foundation yep. and a community and there's all this governance and all these things. How do you think about the advantages and disadvantages of that? Or are you interested in? That'd know, be like a whole podcast. Okay. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I mean, I think the basics of it is that you know I've described it as iPhone versus Android or iOS versus Android. Is that I, I'm an iOS person. I think Android's fine, but I think that iOS. It's a hard thing to say because you can't like quantify it. But I think iOS is more beautiful, and I don't mean that aesthetically. I just think that when you have a single entity. That helps drive the big picture vision. Mm. You just get something that's more designed. I mean, it's more designed, um, and I I don't think foundations have ever done a very good job of that. I think foundations are great at a certain stage of product. Like for example, I think Java 
having a foundation or Apache having a foundation, like for for the actual Apache web server, yeah. uh, like is excellent because they're sort of done. I mean, they're evolving a lot, but the vision is done. It's very clear. Everyone could get behind the vision. I think projects that enter the foundation super early or have governance, open governance, a little bit too early. Uh, it's messy because people bring their own vision, mm. and that shouldn't be the point. The the point should be that everyone gets a fair say in how to achieve the vision, but that's not clear yet, and that's that's the struggle that I sort of have with it. I think that you know the the fears that foundations address are lack of control, you know, change of control in general of like companies, things like that, and I think that. We address that via very liberal open source licensing, as well as being very open to contributors, um, open to feedback. Yeah, we we've never really taken strong combative stances on things. We we're open to these discussions, and I think being a good player has you know you build that reputation. That's what we focused on. Cool, Mitchell. Thank you so much for all of your time today. Thank you. Really yeah, fun. that was great. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.